Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hey everyone, welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show on True North, the first edition of The Andrew Lawton Show podcast. And what an exciting time. I'm very pleased to be doing this. And ultimately, I want to thank everyone who came to the table and said, yes, I support this. I want to listen to it. And even people who contributed money to the endeavor, let me set up this little podcast studio, which is going to be the source of much fun in the months. And who knows, maybe even the years ahead. So I wanted to start with a thank you. And I did a bit of a preview episode, something like a trailer. For those who are interested, you can go back and listen to that just to give a, a sense of what's going to be coming in this show. And at the same time, though, I also think that no matter how much time you plan something, it is impossible for it to go without a hitch. <laughs> you may remember we launched this, I think it was in November. It might have been the beginning of December or the end of November. No, it was in November. We said, we're going to do the Andrew Lawton show. We're going to do it as a podcast. We're going to do it on camera and in audio form. And we had said right from the get-go that we were going to crowdfund it and then launch the show in January. And it wasn't actually because we needed two months to prepare. It was more that you can't really launch anything in the month of December. It just gets lost in the holidays. And November was a bit too early. We needed a little bit of time. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's going to be great. Everything's fine. We'll plan. We'll just wait. And then I'll have a nice little holiday and, and come back and start uh, with the show. And I ordered at that time... I think maybe the first week of December, these things, they're called acoustic wall panels, and, and they're basically from this place in the U.S., it's the only one that makes them, and they are these panels that serve two purposes. They absorb sound, so they do, uh, not soundproofing, but sound dampening, and they also look nice, and, and the, the whole point of this thing was to have something that's functional and stylish to put uh, behind me, so that you're not just looking at a blank, you know, central casting office wall and these things are not there on the walls as you can see again planned paid ordered all of that stuff the company takes a little bit of time to make them and then fedex has to ship them and fedex was the weak link in all of this because they actually lost the package. So last week, uh, <laughs> I'm, this is how professional we are, folks. Uh, nothing works for us, which is just like, you know, the real operations. Uh, we <laughs> FedEx delivered them on Thursday of last week, except they were nowhere to be found. I, I still... Do, do not know how they ended up not being uh, delivered. I called FedEx. I called the company. The company was like, well, take it up with FedEx. They were very nice. Uh, but these things, which were supposed to be on the wall, uh, you know, three weeks ago, had just vanished into thin air. Uh, so FedEx decides to launch an investigation, which is sophisticated in no way whatsoever, uh, because what FedEx does is they get you to describe where you live, and then they talk to the driver to see if that, you know, refreshes his recollection about where he was. And the FedEx woman said, well, you know, the driver is going to retrace his steps and, and see if he can find out where, where these things are. And I'm like, the, the address is on the box, presumably. The address is there. Uh, there's a number on uh, my home. I pr didn't think anything more was required. Uh, so anyway, I, don't I find the box myself yesterday? FedEx has still not responded uh, to me with the results of its investigation. 
but FedEx, uh, nowhere to be found. The box I find uh, with my neighbor still sitting outside <laughs> after uh, several days. So I carried the box, but I did not get time to put the panels up on the wall. I think the sound is actually going to be pretty good. I ran a few tests, but it will hopefully look a little bit nicer behind me as episode two uh, takes form in the next couple of days. But I say that so that you know the behind the scenes, you get a look at how the sausage is made, which is just such a, a glorious, glorious sausage here on the Andrew Lawton Show. I don't think we lose our iTunes clean rating for saying that, so no one report it just in case. Uh, but we do have some great things coming up on the show. Going to be chatting about the Sussex security debacle and how no one seems to know who's going to be paying for their security as they live in Canada part-time or how much. Also going to be speaking a little bit later on about this just horrendous assault that took place outside a court in Surrey on Kean Bexty of Rebel. And also I want to start off though with a little bit on the conservative leadership race. Now I'm not going to go too long on this because I do realize that the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race is going to be dominating much of this show in the last week. It's been just nonstop people getting in, people getting out. But in the next several months, it's going to be nonstop. So I don't want to overload each individual episode, but it is going to play, I think, a role in each episode moving forward. The big news, Brian Brulot is no longer running. Yeah, that's the big news. Brian Brulot. Did you even know Brian Brulot was running? I only knew because I, you know, I'm paid to look at this stuff. I had never heard of a Brian Brulot before, and still to this day I'm not entirely clear what a Brian Brulot is, except for the fact that he apparently worked as a staffer in a ministry in Kim Campbell's government 26 years ago. Which is really, I mean, that's what it takes to be a heavyweight in the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race sometimes. He was, I think he was the, the chief of staff to Kim Campbell's public works minister. So he was like the guy that knew everything about, you know, all the sewers in Canada uh, when Kim Campbell was in the highest paid summer job in the history of Canada. And this guy was like, yeah, you know, 26 years later, I think I think I've put in my due. I think it's time for me to uh, <laughs> to be the Conservative Party of Canada leader. And I don't want to totally actually, no, I do want to totally mock the guy. I, I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think he's a dumb person. By all accounts, he's a nice guy. He's done fundraising and organizing and all of this stuff. But he is completely a nobody in terms of politics. And there's a difference between opposing career politicians and having people just try to bypass the effort and work required. And this is the big problem that I have with a lot of the names that we're seeing on this list right now in the conservative leadership race. There's a guy out of Quebec named Richard DeCary who is running as a social conservative. Again, I know nothing about him. Maybe he's good, maybe he's not, but he's never had elected office before, so far as I can tell. Uh, you've got another name, Rudy Husney, who as well is a former staffer who's now saying he's going to be the next conservative leader. And Brian Brulot, who was like the loudest and most vocal, oddly enough, in saying, yes, I'm going to be running. And then, you know, three and a half days later, ah, no, I'm not running. I'm, I'm throwing my support 
behind Peter McKay, who hasn't even announced he's running yet. So the guy who was like, by all accounts, the front runner, because he was the only one in the race, has decided to throw his support behind a guy who's not yet in the race, which is pretty much why we're off to a great start for the conservative leadership race. But I, I do believe genuinely that there are people from outside the political class that have things to offer. And these are profile building exercises. And that's why we should always be somewhat skeptical of them. Why should you be allowed to essentially build your profile off the backs of a process that has nothing to do with you? And the reason it's down to crunch time now, and it wasn't when you know, all of these people first said they were getting in is because now you actually have to put some serious money together. The Conservative Leadership Council has determined that you need $300,000 and 3,000 member signatures. Now, getting member signatures is very difficult, especially because you need to go after, depending on how the rules are structured, existing members. It's not just get people to join. That comes later when you need people to vote for you. But it's actually about getting existing members to endorse your nomination. And I had to do this when I was running for a nomination years ago. I not year I say it make it sound like it's like three decades ago. No, it was like two years ago. But I was running for a nomination and it's it's difficult to find people that are members of the party paid up that know they are members of the party. You get lots of people that, you know, they were a member of the party and they, they were a member when Brian Brulot worked for the party and their member expired around that time and they just don't know because they still get fundraising calls. So they assume oh, I must still be a member. But it is difficult. So that is going to weed a lot of people out. Now, a friend of mine pointed out that he was surprised Brian Brulot didn't milk it a little bit longer until that cutoff for the first hundred and fifty or the first $25,000. That's what they have to put down right out of the gate, 25000 And then they have to put another 25000 and, you know, it goes on and on. But I honestly think that we are going to have a, a bit of a clown car leadership race to start because everyone who is even remotely interested is going to say they're running. And then once the first couple of payment deadlines come, then I think everyone's going to clear out. But I, I am going to tell you right now that as this race evolves, we're going to be trying to get all of the leadership candidates on the show. We're going to offer them a chance to talk about their vision for Canada, their vision for the Conservative Party, for the Conservative movement. We're going to be doing as many of these in person as we can. I mean, if uh, we can only get someone on by Skype, we'll get them on by Skype. Uh, but I'm prepared to travel for it. And I think it's going to be great. And I actually did this in the 2017 leadership race when I did my show on AM radio and had them, almost all of the leadership candidates come out of their way to, to come into the studio and, and sit down because there is a, a value to them in speaking to people that are more sympathetic to conservative issues. And, and I've always been candid. I am a philosophical small C conservative. I'm not a party loyalist, but I am someone that wants all parties to do as well as they can. And I want the conservative party to really bolster conservative ideas. So in that sense, I'll give them an opportunity. I'll give them a fair shake, but I'm not going to be a sycophant or, or a water bearer. That's basically the promise that I would make to you or, or anyone else. But I do think there, there is an important dynamic 
in the leadership race that we're going to see. And that is this battle of, you're going to hear it, national unifier versus these people that have these little regional pockets of support. And I mean, Jean Charest, for example, who we know is running based on a number of reports, is a guy that's going to say, oh, well, if I run, I can win seats in Quebec that are normally closed off to conservatives. And then you'll get someone from Alberta saying, well, you know, we need someone that's going to stand up for the Western voice. And then you're going to get someone that's going to come in. And Pierre Polyev, who it sounds like is running, is probably going to make the pitch, well, I'm born in Alberta, but I live in Ontario, and I've got a Western sensibility, but I come from a part of the country that we need to support, and I speak French, so I I can do Quebec. And the national unifying thing is important, but I also am very cautious whenever electability, and I I put that in, in big air quotes, whenever electability becomes the priority above substance, because I think style is important. I think electability is important. I think all of these factors are relevant. But at the same time, I also think that you need someone who has something to sell. I mean, it, it's if you're the best salesperson in the country, but you don't have a product worth selling, I don't care how many people buy it because it's not something I personally want. It'll be gathering dust on my shelf to torture the metaphor even further. So I, I think that is ultimately where... Things are going to go with this. Uh, like I said, but let me know what you think, though. My email address, andrew at andrewlawton.ca. I think we're going to do some reader email stuff as the episodes progress. This is the first episode, so I have no reader email for you. Listener email, whatever it is. Viewer email. I keep forgetting. I'm doing this in, uh, with a camera flashing at me as well. But that's all going to be coming up in future episodes. We'll get a sense of what you think and who you think is best for the Conservative Party of Canada. I, I want to take a, a little pivot, if I can, here into this gong show that's happened outside the court in Surrey, British Columbia. Uh, Jessica Yaniv, who is the transgender wax my balls serial litigant in a number of cases that the Human Rights Commission ultimately shot down, has become a nasty, nasty person when confronted by cameras, despite the fact that Yaniv has been a a serial publicity hound for months and even longer. And the reason I think this has changed is because Yaniv has gone from being everyone's favorite victim to someone that the LGBT community wants nothing to do with, the conservatives want nothing to do with, the media wants nothing to do with, and and the only interest that exists for Yaniv is negative interest because of Yaniv's own conduct and Yaniv's own actions. Now, Yaniv right now is facing charges of possession of a weapon for brandishing a taser on an interview with a transgender YouTuber, Blair White. Uh, Not been proven in court yet, not found guilty, although Yaniv, because of negative publicity, wanted the judge to grant a publication ban. And in court, we had the Justice of the Peace, it was, I believe, saying, you know, there's no precedent for you think people are going to say mean things about you, so therefore no one should be able to write about you. And I think that the Yaniv story sits a little bit uneasily with me because I see a person who's genuinely unwell. I don't see a person who is 
just a, a renegade activist. I see someone who's genuinely disturbed and I think who's very unstable. And again, I'm not a, a psychologist. I've never met Yaniv. I'm okay with that. I've never interviewed Yaniv and have no interest in doing so. But I also don't think you can say there isn't a newsworthiness, especially with the uh, serial litigation that Yaniv is filing. And there was a, another case, I think a week or two ago, where another complaint was filed against another immigrant-owned salon. So it's a reverse class action where instead of everyone suing one person, it's one person suing everyone. But I think there is a newsworthiness. The only outlets that are really covering this are new media outlets, Rebel, Post, Millennial, and True North. All outlets had someone at the courtroom in Surrey when this happened. And it was Kean Bexty of Rebel that ended up getting under Yaniv's skin the most prominently. And have a, well, I'll talk about this in a moment, but, but in the meantime, have a look at the video. If you're listening to the audio, listen to this exchange that happened, which was leaving the courthouse. Leaving the courthouse, uh, Bexty was recording and asked uh, if Yaniv will be pleading guilty. And then this happens. You need, will you, will you be you pleading go? guilty? Go. What? Go. No, go. don't touch me. Don't touch go. me. Hey! hey. Go. Stop! Go away from me. Go away. Go away from me. Jesus, get away from me. Go away. Crazy. Get thing. away from me. Get away. Get the away from me. Stay away from me. Get away from me. Now. Right now. You heard me? I'm calling the police on you. I don't give a Get away from me. So we want to protect that iTunes clean rating. So the bleeps were all F words, if you had any doubt in your mind about it. Uh, Kean sounds like he's okay. I don't know if he went to the hospital or not, but he was tweeting about, you know, wanting a, a health card or wanting to know if his Alberta health card would work in, in BC, which I, I believe it will. That's the one great thing about universal health care, at least. And believe me, there's only one, is that you can use any province's health card in any other province, as I understand it but gets assaulted, it appears on camera, outside a courthouse by someone who claims that they are the victim, that they're the one that's being oppressed, they're the one who's being persecuted, they're the one who's being attacked. And I don't know if there are going to be any charges filed for this incident or perhaps civil litigation, who knows? And, and to be honest, it doesn't matter as much. To me, what matters is the double standard here, that if a journalist is assaulted in any other capacity, you would have activist groups lining up, calling it an assault on the press, people calling for justice, whereas in this case, they're weighing that belief, that moral belief against whether they believe Key and Bexty is, is a worthwhile victim in their estimation. And you can see this on Twitter, by the way. You know, there are people, for example, and I'll read one of the tweets here. There was someone who said that violence is never the answer unless Kian is on the receiving end of it. And we've seen this happen whenever Sheila Gunn Reid has been attacked. This is a shockingly common occurrence for rebel reporters, by the way, to be assaulted in the line of duty. And, and the reason for that, and I'm not justifying it, but I, I'm explaining it, is because they're going into the thick of it in a way that other people in the media simply aren't. They're going in the midst of tense situations because that's the best way to find out what's happening in the real world. But the problem with this is that people are so focused on, can we 
say anything condemning the act without it sounding like we're supporting the person who we hate and, and dislike. No, okay, we'll, we'll just stay silent. And Key and, and I actually got to know each other a little bit during the election campaign, the federal election campaign, in, in which we were litigants in the same case going up against the Leaders' Debates Commission. And this was the case, I know you've heard me talk about it, but it was a significant case for me and, and for True North that basically got Kean, David Menzies, also from Rebel, and myself, court-ordered practitioners of journalism, as Kean says, and I think in his Twitter bio. And the same thing happened there, where people who had a moral belief that, yes, the free press is important, had to couch that because they didn't think the people who were fighting that fight, Rebel and, and True North in that case, were necessarily worth being the martyrs on this issue or whatever the, the proper term is. And th this has to stop. And, and I did a video a few weeks ago where I took aim at uh, political tribalism for this exact reason. And the reason I, I think it's so important to end political tribalism is because it puts people in these situations which are completely hypocritical, situations that give no sense of consistency, which I think is a tremendously important value, and situations where eventually you are not standing up for what's right because you're worried that doing so might empower someone that you've already determined is not worth it. And I know this sounds like such a cliche, but I'll say it anyway. You don't have to like or even respect Rebel to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't be punched in the face or punched in the back of the head, as he says, outside a courtroom for asking a pretty reasonable question of someone who is facing charges. And maybe if this does happen, people should condemn it and call on police to do their jobs here. And on the way into court, there was another video Kian had posted that showed police were more focused on getting Yaniv in the building and getting Kian away than they were about just keeping the peace. Now, in this case, not having seen the full context, not having been there, it's possible their thing was just de-escalation. This person's got to get in court, get Yaniv in court, uh, Kian, in this case, appears to be harassing her. We'll figure out what's happening later, but get Yaniv in the door. Uh, that that I don't necessarily like because it's based on what Yaniv is saying is happening, but that's a possibility. Afterwards, though, it's just Yaniv running towards Kian saying, get away from me, which if you've ever told someone to get away from you, it's not the most convincing if you yell it as you are charging towards them which is what's happening here. So I think that Yaniv was a, a very fascinating and is for many reasons a very fascinating example in Canadian politics because when the Wax My Balls cases first came up, everyone was thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe this is... Maybe, but, but, but what Yaniv was doing was pushing a cultural trend to its logical conclusion. Okay, if you think that there is zero difference between a biological woman and a trans woman, then you cannot say that a trans woman does not have the right to demand people offer a genital wax. And, and there were a lot of activists that were very uncomfortable with the fact that they were forced to defend something because of the parameters that they set. And, and I think that 
Yaniv ending up being this just vile person has actually helped them in a lot of ways because it's made it so that they don't need to talk about all of those human rights issues. They can just talk about, oh, well, uh, Yaniv isn't an example. Yaniv is not representative of trans people. Yaniv has issues. And, and they get to just move this completely off the table in a way that I think probably helps a lot of these activists in a lot of ways. And that's just me. So I'm glad Kean seems to be okay. I hope police take it seriously and investigate it. I hope that there are charges laid, but ultimately I don't think there will be because I think everyone is caught up in this mindset of, well, it's all about the context and, you know, well, about the what if and, and the feeling of being unsafe. Because remember, feeling unsafe is more relevant and more pertinent than actually being hit right now. And I think that in 2020, it is more, you could be punched in the face and have less of a grounds to say, I feel unsafe than just feeling it because you feel it. <laughs> and, and that is where we are now. And it's making justice and, and law enforcement, I, I think, incredibly difficult. Uh, we've got more coming up on the Andrew Lawton show in just a moment. Stay tuned. We've got Aaron Woodrick from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation coming up in just a couple of moments. But I, <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing already because I'm looking at something that you can't see yet. You'll, you'll see it in a moment, but you've got to just let me have my joy here. So anytime you log on to Facebook, as you know, you see a bunch of ads for really weird things. If you've ever seen an ad for this website called Wish, they sell the most bizarre things. And I, I'm pretty sure they're doing it knowing that people are going to see it and say, that's ridiculous and, and then buy it. But it, sometimes you see something that is a real thing that just doesn't seem that real. And this happened with an ad I saw on Facebook for the Royal Canadian Mint, which sells a lot of novel, not novelty coins, but limited edition coins, limited run stuff. And I don't know why I saw this ad. I haven't been in the market for uh, coins. I'm not a... Is it Numismatist? Uh, Numismatist, is that someone who collects coins? I think so. You can tell we're doing this live because I just ask questions and, and there's no producer to answer for me. I'll Google after the fact, but by this point I've already committed to Numismatistry, Mattistism. This was a terrible, terrible idea. Who, who wanted this show to come back? Anyway... I saw this ad on Facebook for a 10-ounce pure silver double concave coin wolves from Nature's Grandeur series. Now, I'm not in the business of buying Royal Canadian Mint coins. I have a few that I've been given as gifts that I actually love, but I don't consider myself a collector. This particular one, $995, but uh, Canadian Mint uh, has your back. You can just buy it for four monthly payments of $249.99. So that's an option if you really like it. Uh, but tell me what you think of when you see this coin at a glance. Yeah, that was basically my thought, and, and you could tell me to get my mind out of the gutter, but at a glance and scrolling through Facebook, I thought it was like the Two Wolves copulating series from the Royal Canadian Mint, celebrating Canadian biology, celebrating the wolf repopulation efforts in the Rocky Mountain area. That was, I, that was what I thought. I was like, this is like a, a Me Too by Wolf taking place. And, <laughs> and, and then I, I finally, uh, you know, re-looked at it again. And I was like, this is, okay, I can see the legs are on the other side. So, I mean, that would be really awkward. 
if uh, if something was uh, happening there that was funny business. But then you, you realize the other issue, which is that if you zoom in on the face, they actually look like the kind of wolves that I would draw. And I, I'm not an artist, uh, but to help the uh, the analogy along, the kind of wolves that I would draw after having a few shots of vodka and with my eyes closed. And they they look like... Did you ever see that uh, famous... It's now famous for the wrong reasons. Restoration of a, a painting of Jesus that was done. And, and Jesus just looked like... Uh, they, they ruined Jesus, basically, in, in this artwork. And, and the restorer, I don't think, has ever worked again. Or a more pop culture example, when Mr. Bean tried to do the restoration of Whistler's mother in the Mr. Bean movie. That one as well, another great example. Uh, and at first I thought, okay, maybe the wolves look like this because the coin is concave and it's an angle thing, uh, but then you turn it and they look uh, just as bad, perhaps even worse, head on. And they've somehow sold 95% of the inventory of these they've had. And it's not even like people are buying it as a novelty because they're going for for $1,000. And what's, look, I'm, I'm looking up now the value of silver in Canada because this is 10 ounces of silver. Uh, silver is apparently $23 an ounce today at the time that I record this. So let, let's just say $25 an ounce for simplicity. Uh, that means this is a $250 coin that's being sold for $1,000. So maybe they're preempting that old idea that, you know, things are more valuable if they have a mistake on them. They're like, oh, everyone's going to hate these wolves, so let's just sell them for $1,000 and, and get rid of them. Uh, but this is the Royal Canadian Mint. And uh, this, as far as government departments go, the mint is not typically the one that I have a huge issue with. But again, anytime someone says government can do it better, two wolves copulating the coin series brought to you by the Royal Canadian Mint. I feel bad because apparently the artist is a very good artist. Uh, and someone pointed me to other work they've done that was not terrible. So the artist himself must be buying up all of this, uh, these coins. He's bought the 95% because he wants to make sure no one else, uh, uh, no one else sees them. Oh, what else is going on here? Also a fun story. The Tokyo Olympics committee is warning people. Well, not warning people, assuring people that the cardboard beds they're giving athletes will suspend the weight of two people doing the funny business in the Olympic beds. Uh, the Tokyo 2020 committee has to outfit the Olympic village and they've got a manufacturer who's built literally cardboard beds that will be used for the athletes apparently, which is like nothing says we're grateful for you for fighting for your country. Like here's a, a cardboard box to sleep on. But uh, one athlete in particular, Andrew Bogot, who's a, an Australian basketball player, says it's a great gesture until the athletes finish their events and thousands of condoms handed out all over the village are put to use. But the manufacturer says, don't worry, the bed can withstand a weight of 440 pounds and have been through rigorous stress tests. So the manufacturers have been stress testing the Olympic beds, if you know what I mean. And uh, what the spokesperson said is as long as they stick to just two people in the bed, they should be strong enough to support the bed and take from that whatever you will about the Olympic Committee for Tokyo 2020. Yeah, the Tokyo Olympics coming up. I, I actually this is the first Olympic story I've seen. And of course, it's uh, the, the two wolves could be on the bed in the Tokyo Olympics and would apparently be completely and utterly fine. 
And while we're on this little uh, darker turn through the Andrew Lawton show, I will tell you there have been reports of a man in Mexico who took a stimulant for bulls and ended up with a three-day erection, which is not uh, like a new love story, like the Hallmark movie, The Three-Day Erection. It's a medical affliction for a Mexican man who ended up having to go to a hospital and unfortunately took the bull drug instead of the human variant. Uh, but the good news is he was uh, his, his problems were cured for three days, so at least that was good. But uh, this is why you should always look at the labels and the dosage as well of anything you take. A public service announcement from the good people here at True North. Okay, when we come back, we will talk to Aaron Woodrick of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation about the security bill for the Sussexes, and is Canada going to be on the hook for it? That's coming right up. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. You know, Canadians and Americans, and I think people outside of the United Kingdom, have been watching this whole... Uh, they're calling it Megxit, uh, the <laughs> the exit from the royal family for uh, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, for Harry, the Duke of Sussex, Prince Harry and, and Meghan colloquially. And this has now come home for Canadians a little bit. This is not just some soap opera unfolding across the pond, but something that may have real implications for Canadians, specifically whether we are going to be on the hook for the security costs for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to make a home for themselves in Canada. We know that Meghan Markle, back when she was an actress, had lived in Toronto for a bit when she was filming Suits. We also know that the two of them have apparently been granted by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II a transition out of official and full-time royal duties. They'll be living during this transition part-time in the UK, part-time in Canada. We've also seen reports they may be spending a bit of time in the U.S. as well, where Meghan's family is. But apparently, according to a report in the London Evening Standard, Justin Trudeau offered to pay for the security costs, or rather to get you and I to pay for the security costs. This was reported in the U.K. media. Then the PMO in Canada wouldn't comment on it. Then Bill Morneau said, ah, there have been no discussions. And then Justin Trudeau said... They are in discussions about it. So we've had a ba basically four different stories, three of them from the Canadian government in the last couple of days alone. I want to talk about this and what it means for the Canadian taxpayers. Aaron Woodrick joins me on the line, federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Association. And also, as it so happens, the Duke of Lower Taxdom. Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate the royal title. So this is something that, I mean, for starters, there's a, a gross mishandling of the announcement here, as I just mentioned. No one seems to know what's been agreed to, if anything, but, but certainly on the table, there's at least a discussion about whether Canadian taxpayers will be on the hook via the RCMP for protecting this couple and their son as they live in Canada. And I want to get a, a sense here because we know how much security costs tend to amount when prime ministers travel abroad. And I think that when foreign dignitaries come to Canada, it makes sense while they're here for a couple of days to protect them. This is not a program that's meant for people making Canada a home, though. No, it's not. It's a very different thing to provide a courtesy of security when people are visiting uh, versus when they are here permanently. And that's what we're talking about here. Again, the, like you said, the details aren't clear. So we don't know if they're going to be here the whole time, half time. 
but the point is, what is clear, I can tell you, Andrew, from all the correspondence that I've been getting, is that uh, Canadians are overwhelmingly concerned about having to pay for uh, the Duke and Duchess to be here. Um, this is not a personal thing. The question is just a very simple one, is that, you know, what, what business do they have asking Canadian taxpayers to foot the bill for their choice to, to want to spend time here? Yeah, and we don't have this American approach of everyone except for, you know, seven people in the country getting lifetime secret service protection. We are typically pretty modest about this, and it seems as though if they are living in Canada, that's because they're departing from that role that requires that protection, or at least requires taxpayers to pay for it. So no matter what the amount is, and we've heard estimates that it could be $1.7 million a year. Uh, you think uh, of them as being under 40. I, I mean, that's millions and millions of dollars uh, in perpetuity for something that there's no real value to the taxpayers for, and, and no real necessity for, it sounds like. Well, yeah, and I think it's not just the amount for people, it's the principle. People are saying, why, why should we be, why are regular Canadians who pay their taxes and expect important programs and services in return, why is some of that money getting siphoned off to pay for people who just decided that they wanted to live here and that were somehow stuck with the tab? The other thing I'd say, Andrew, is it doesn't square with their own ambition. I mean, to their credit, the Duke and Duchess have said they want to be financially independent. That's their goal. Um, you can't be financially independent if Canadian taxpayers are footing the bill. So I certainly welcome them saying that, and I hope that they can live up to that and not expect Canadian taxpayers to pay their bills for them. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and the one thing, and whenever this topic has arisen in the U.S., for example, the point has been made that former presidents are immensely marketable and, and they make millions on the speaker circuit doing books. They can afford private security if it's something they value. And it sounds like for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, who, as you note, are, are working towards becoming financially independent. We know Meghan Markle has apparently been in talks with Disney, as has her husband. Uh, these are, are things where, yeah, they want to go it alone and they think it's important, they could pay for this themselves. And uh, if there's a specific risk that they're facing, sure, I want the RCMP to be there. But we're talking about protecting people that, as you note, ingrained in what they're doing seems to be a, a desire to get off of the taxpayer's dime. Absolutely. I mean, you can argue that this to sort of get away from that lifestyle of living in a bubble, of, of having all these official duties that they have in the UK and good for them. Right. I, I, and I recognize that some people, some people like the couple personally, some don't like them. That's not really what this is about. This is about whatever they choose. Should Canadian taxpayers be expected to just pay whatever it costs to deal with it? And I don't think a lot of Canadians are, are willing to do that. I want to ask you more broadly about the challenge when it comes to security costs, because this is always a tricky one. And, and of the things that you're going to spend the taxpayers money on law enforcement security, if it's done smartly, if it's done well, I, I don't think is bad. And, and same as protecting the prime minister. It costs a lot of money, but, but there's a value there. How do you have that discussion seriously without it sounding like you don't take the issue seriously? Yeah, look, I think a good example of that actually is the Prime Minister's travel, right? We all know that he always flies, he goes on vacations on a government plane, and the argument has always been for security purposes, right? And yet we hear uh, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, flying commercial to go on his vacation. Um, so it, it is a little bit strange to say, well, how come the British Prime Minister can fly commercial and our Prime Minister cannot? You know, when Boris Johnson flies, he saves 
piles of money for British taxpayers. Is it not fair to ask whether maybe it would it not be cheaper for Canadian taxpayers to pay for a bunch of uh, RCMP security to travel with Prime Minister Trudeau on a commercial flight uh, and save money? So I, I don't think, look, no one is suggesting that we don't pay anything for security, but I think using the idea of security as this uh, you know, blank check for any amount of spending uh, is not a reasonable approach either. Yeah, that's a, an important point, I, I think, because the whole premise of post 9-11 airport security is that we've made airplanes and airports essentially the safest places to be. So arguably, an airport is more secure than even an event the prime minister does. I, I mean, many people may know I was trying to cover uh, Justin Trudeau on the campaign trail. I got into, I think, one or two of his events. Uh, no metal detectors, no pat downs, no wanding. So by the time someone gets on a plane with him, if it's a commercial Air Canada flight or something, Thing, they've already gone through more screening than they go through to access him most of the rest of the year. Yeah, I think when it comes to security, uh, the question always has to be asked of whether or not there's a reasonable alternative that would cost a lot less. And in terms of, uh, you know, flying, uh, that that is the alternative. And again, we're looking at the, the prime minister of the United Kingdom is, is, you know, of equal or higher stature than a Canadian prime minister in the world state. So it's hard to argue that uh, there would be security threats that face a Canadian prime minister that don't face a British one. Uh, and, and there are many other OECD countries we've looked at where you have heads of state and prime ministers and presidents flying commercials, certainly on vacation, not for official business. Uh, but uh, it, so, look, I, I think that, um, of course, we want to ensure that people have security, but also just saying whatever it costs uh, is not an acceptable answer. Now, going back to the Sussex security question here, and it sounds like there's a, at least a dialogue going on in the government, and, and we don't yet know if those initial UK reports were uh, completely fictitious, were a little bit embellished or, or whatever. We've, we've just been getting conflicting answers here. Uh, but you've said there's been a, a lot of interest in this, uh, and not just from Canadian taxpayers. Explain a little bit about how this has landed on your desk in the last couple of days. Yeah, I've been receiving uh, queries from the British press, which is not usual for a Canadian taxpayer advocate, but they have a similar question. You know, uh, are, are, are you concerned about the cost? Are Canadian taxpayers concerned? I, I should say they've been a little bit ahead of the curve because, you know, they started asking uh, and, you know, my I had concerns, but I can tell you I've been getting a lot of correspondence from regular Canadians on this. I, I would say it goes as far as to say it's one of the hottest topics I've seen in, in quite a while uh, which is a, perhaps a little bit surprising, given that we're talking about millions, not billions. But it just goes to show you that uh, there are a lot of people who have their noses out of joint just at the idea that taxpayers are going to be expected to to pick up the tab. Yeah, I think the British are probably happy because now someone else gets to. So they're happy that this is like a cost burden shifting endeavor for them by the <laughs> by the, the family coming to Canada. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cost sharing arrangement. Uh, so let me ask you then, because I know that uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation every year does the big Teddy Awards, where you go and, and give the award for the government waste. I think uh, the, the large uh, rubber duck might have been a contender one year. I, I think there have been other uh, significant uh, endeavors to expose government waste. Uh, do you think that as we enter the award season, Oscar nominees just announced, the Golden Globes just happened. Is this an early contender for the Teddies? Boy, we'll have to see what the tab is. And I say we've never had an international, uh, although we have had a, we have had a royal winner, the past winner for her uh, lavish spending ways. So you never know. You could see the royals on that list at some point. Yeah. So at, at worst case scenario, you can make a new international category of, uh, you know, the, the cr cross border, cross border government waste. 
Absolutely. That would not be, that would not be above us for sure. All right. Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks a lot, Andrew. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. <laughs> I, I still like Megxit as the basically orderly departure from the royal family. And whether Megxit or Brexit happens first, I think, is the big challenge for the odds makers right now. I still have my money out that Megxit will. Uh, I, I think everything in the world will take place before Brexit. So I, my money is on Megxit uh, taking place. And, and perhaps it's a model for Brexit. Maybe the UK can also get Justin Trudeau to pay for their security costs as a condition of leaving the European Union. Who knows? Uh, but glad Aaron Woodrick was able to join and, and glad he's getting some international exposure. I have a hard enough time getting Canadians to care about government waste. And now uh, all of a sudden the people of Britain are interested in government waste. So that's all fun. That's all uh, fine and dandy as we move into this new era of the royal family. I've had some people that just despise that we are even talking about the royals. I've had people that I know that love that we get an excuse to talk about them. And I've had people that are now like forced to reassess whether they really like Prince Harry that much. Because he used to always be like the Canadian bad boy, everyone's favorite. And now he's uh, basically the one dismantling the thousand-year tradition of uh, the royals. So I'm not exactly sure where things are going to land on this. Uh, certainly, you know, how much does it cost to give them... Even if you were to give them one full-time RCMP officer each, or let's say two, so they can cover off on on breaks, even three. Let's say an RCMP officer makes uh, three hundred thousand, uh, makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, that is, you know, three hundred thousand dollars a year to give them three full-time, round-the-clock, protective details. But three people, there are two of them, so. And then there's their one child. So that's 900,000 right there. So it's easy to see how the costs could go up very quickly, which means that you need to go back to the drawing board. And, and like Aaron said, it's not necessarily about just how much does it cost specifically, uh, but even more fundamentally, is this the kind of thing we should be paying for? And look, I don't think you should scrimp on security, but I also think if you are leaving public life and, and you're making a conscious effort to move away from that way of living, then you can't bring the best of both worlds. And if you must, Scotland Yard has to deal with it. You're them. It's the British government that thinks you need protection. Let them send a Scotland Yard detail to live in Canada for this. Are they going to do it? No. And the reason why is because they are making a point of leaving that world. Like, imagine, do you think that if they were to go to the U.S., that the Secret Service is at all going to say, oh, well, um, you know, I guess I guess we're now uh, giving... Well, the Secret Service probably would because they don't care about spending money. But but I don't think they would. I, I can't imagine Trump signing off. Yeah, we'll give uh, Prince Harry and that, uh, that Duchess girl, we'll give them uh, security. I don't think it would happen. So I don't think Canada should as well. We've got to wrap things up for today. We'll be back in just a couple of days with more of the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com and you can subscribe on all of the devices on iTunes, Google Podcasts, listen on Spotify, contribute to the show, which really does mean a lot because we are a grassroots initiative and keep tabs on what's coming ahead in the weeks and months to come. Thanks very much, folks. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. God bless and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.